Well, one of the reasons why I wanted uh, to read through the entire chapter is because it all fits together. It's one of those things where there's so much kind of packed in to this space, it's impossible to really separate it, but in order to, in order to tackle it in a way that's meaningful and helpful, you've got to break, break it out into pieces. And so over the last two weeks, and probably for two more, we're going to be in the, this chapter of, of 2 Peter chapter 2, trying to, to wrestle with this, this, difficult, this difficult passage. We're going to focus our time on verses 20 and 21. And there's an alarming statement that Peter makes in verse 21 where he says, It would have been better for them if they had never heard the gospel. How is that possible? It would have been better for them if they had never heard than having heard to turn away how is that even possible? Well, you've heard the statement, I'm sure, maybe even used the statement, ignorance is bliss. You ever used that statement before? <laughs> I, I, I probably live by that statement more than I should. You know, like, who wants to go to the doctor? What's the point of going to the doctor? They're just going to tell me bad news. So if, if ignorance is bliss and, and I, I want to enjoy a, a good state of mind, I, things seem to be going well, why ruin it? Why spoil it? Uh, why go to the doctor, right? Um, you know, and that little light on the dashboard, um, hey, cars are working fine. Uh, no problems yet. It's okay. Why, why spoil my trip? Why, why spoil the vacation with, with bad news if this light is on in the dashboard? And I don't, I don't want to have to worry about that at this point. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure some of you have decided that your kids are, are a certain age, and so you strategically and wisely decide to withhold certain things about information so they don't have to worry, so they don't have to be anxious, they don't have to be afraid or, or worried uh, about the stage of life. And so ignorance, in that case, is bit bliss and probably wise in some cases. Or, you know, like, let's say you go to an amusement park, you go to, to, to King's Island, and you're like, hey, uh, what a great day. It, and, and your kids are scrolling on the little weather app, and they've got, Dad, I got, I got some bad news for you. Keep it to yourself. I want to enjoy whatever moments I got. I don't want to spoil this. Let's just, let's just enjoy the moment, okay? We can understand ignorance as bliss in some of these situations. We, we don't want to feel burdened by hard news. We, we want to maximize the moment, as, as it were, in our enjoyment. And the truth is that we would love to avoid chapters like chapter 2 of 2 Peter. But because of a commitment to expositional teaching, and because of a confidence in that Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness, why? So that the man or woman of God might be perfect, thoroughly, and completely equipped for every good work. We are in 2 Peter chapter 2 for the third time because we believe 
that Second Peter, however difficult, is good. We believe that however hard this word might be this morning, we understand that if we're going to grow in maturity, if we're going to be the kinds of people that God has called us to be, we need Second Peter chapter 2, verses 17 to 22. I, w- I would love to skip this passage. It's a hard passage, but it's a necessary passage, especially in light of the culture and the atmosphere, the environment in which we are living. A couple weeks ago, I went to a church, and um, I had the opportunity to meet somebody at the end of the service who was the, the, the teaching assistant. And and what their role was is to kind of work ahead and provide the articles and the commentaries, the information, uh, the illustrations and the passages that the pastor would use as he's putting together uh, his messages. And, um, and what was interesting was this person said, I, I, I tell him what passages to use and I tell him what passages to avoid. Our commitment here at Maranatha is to let the Bible determine the teaching schedule. And so when there are hard passages, we don't gloss over the passages. And when there are encouraging passages, we allow the word to inform our hearts and encourage us in the moment. We, we trust in the sovereignty of God, the providence of God to lead us to the right passage at the right time. And, and, and apparently, this week and next is the right time for 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 to 22. Let me read these two verses. We're going to read verses 20 and 21. We're going to focus on these two verses and allow these verses to kind of expand the rest of our, of our thinking and kind of fill out our understanding of, of not just these verses, but, but, but pour into the verses ahead and kind of reach a little further into chapter three and, and kind of pull it all together so we can understand what is the message that God wants for us this morning. Whenever I do this for myself, and, and, and by the way, before I, before I jump in too deep, I, I just wanna give a special thanks to Pastor David and to Tom Zenz for the faithful teaching of the word of God. You know, one of the joys that we have as God's people is recognizing that truth and encouragement isn't dependent upon a person. It's dependent upon the message, the word of God, the authority of the scripture. It's independent. And so, and so thank you for letting my family and I uh, spend a couple of weeks away and thank you, Tom, who was here, here in the first service. Thank you, Pastor David, for your faithfulness in teaching the word. If you have not heard those messages, you need to. They will be encouraging to you as we're not going to be able to work through all of those things again, but they apply to what we're going to be talking about this morning. Whenever I come to the text, I always come to the text with questions. We call them interpretive questions. And the reason for that is because 
a true student of the word of God isn't coming with the answers already there and the word of God kind of informing his own heart to what the answers are. Yes, I knew that already. You're coming to the word. You're submitting yourself to the scripture. You're letting the word inform you and not the other way around, right? So let me read verses 20 and 21 and we'll start asking some of these questions together working through this very difficult text. It says, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. So let's start asking ourselves some questions. First of all, who are these people? Who are these people? And so we're, we're gonna work our way through the, this, just the, the language of this and we, we need to be honest with the text because we may think we want the answer to kind of go our way, but again, we need, the, we need the word of God to inform our hearts to the answer. First, I want us to acknowledge that these seem, these people seem to have the right nature. They seem to have the right nature. This word that Peter uses here, he's now used for the third time, this word escaped. It's describing not just an immediate condition, it's something that has happened in the past and it has a continuing result. It's, it's a perpetual thing. They have escaped in the past, they're escaping, 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 escaping until some point, all right? There is a sense in which they have They've enjoyed the fleeing or the departing from this wicked lifestyle that Peter is referring to. They've escaped in some way the defilements of the world. He uses this word in chapter one, verse four. Look at that with me. He says, so that through them, he's talking about through the very great and precious promises, through those promises you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped, there's our word, from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Almost the exact same phrase that Peter uses in chapter 2 is the one that he's using in chapter 1 verse 4. The, the, he's starting with this. This is what you should look for for believers. This is the, the evidence that God has actually saved a person because they've escaped. They're they're no longer bound. And, and, and Peter begins uh, the very first statement that he uses in, in chapter one, verse one. He says, Peter, an apostle, and then a slave of Christ, meaning he's no longer a slave of corruption. He, he, he's escaped that life. He's enjoying the divine nature. He's experiencing the power of God that we see in chapter one, verse three that indwelling power of God is, is prevalent and permeating his life. There's a sense of escape. These are individuals, at least in chapter one, verse four, who are believers. And, and then in 2 Peter chapter two, verse 18, uh, uh, that which is actually in our passage, it says, for speaking loud boastful, boasts of, of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping 
from those who live in error. Here he's setting up a contrast. These false teachers that are trying to entice and, and invite and, and, and compel these uh, brand new baby believers to, to, to follow their lifestyle, they're, they're barely escaping. He's setting a, a, a contrast here to say there's something different about them. They're, they're, they're not following after, at least not quite yet. This is language for conversion. This is the kind of life that Peter describes as somebody who is truly part of the church, somebody who has a true experience with God. We need to acknowledge that Peter is using conversion language here. So they not only have the right nature, but then he, then he, he, he emphasizes this, and now he says they, they seem to also have the right knowledge because it says they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This word for knowledge is the same word he's used throughout the entire letter. This is the, the, the word that, um, that helps to express participation. It helps to, uh, to emphasize the acquiring of knowledge on the part of the learner that helps you to understand not just a, a learning knowledge process, but especially as it relates to the object in which they're learning, this being Christ. They not just know him, but there is this seeming relationship. There's a, a posture of loyalty towards the object of knowledge. It often is used to describe a full, rich, and thorough knowledge involving a degree of intimate understanding. This is the word that knowledge that Peter's been using all along. And, and, and by the way, from the very beginning of this letter, he wants you to understand that, that every part of the Christian life, all of the good things in the Christian life can only happen through this kind of knowledge. He says in chapter one, verse two, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the, what church? The knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Same, same word. And in chapter one, verse three, he says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence. And as he's describing the whole journey of spiritual maturity, in chapter one, verses five to eight, he says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement to your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge. Knowledge is instrumental, and knowledge is essential, an essential building block for true conversion, true saving faith. And in verse eight, he says, for if these qualities are yours and increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian life that is flourishing, it's effective, it's fruitful because of knowledge and, and that knowledge is, is growing and flourishing and, and building. But also notice, this isn't just any knowledge. This is the knowledge that he describes here as being a full-bodied understanding of Jesus himself. He says, the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He, he's, he's putting all the terms that he started this letter with 
In chapter one, verse one, Jesus, who is Christ, he's the promised one, he's Messiah. He's the one we're waiting for, and here he is. And then in chapter one, the second part where Jesus is Savior. He's the one who we can experience deliverance and salvation and forgiveness of sin. And then in verse two, Jesus, who is Lord, he's the one who's the master. He's the one who calls the shots in your life. And, and, and by the way, in chapter two, verse one and two, where Peter is describing the quality of the false teachers, the, the quintessential mark of their defiance is they reject the Lord who is their master. But somehow, this group of people have a knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, all put together, this full-bodied, complete, essential understanding of the gospel. They know it. They've personalized it in some way. They recognize it. They have seen it. They've affirmed it. And here they are. So Peter uses this language that seems to indicate they not only have the right nature, but they have the right knowledge. And as we continue to, to read here, we begin to see that something happens. Something happens to them, and we'll find that next here in the second half of verse 20. It says, they are entangled in them. Let me just read the whole verse. It, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Peter uses two descriptions, two phrases that he puts together here at the second half of verse 20 to describe something that has taken place in their life. He describes, first of all, that they are captured. These are people who are captured. He uses the word entangled. It's used only two times in the New Testament. It's, it's the word to braid or the word to interweave. It's, it's like getting a fly kind of caught in the web, as it were, or a fish that's been caught in the net. They've been captured. They've been trapped. And in, in some way, this group of individuals, while at one point in their life they had escaped the defilements of the world, now all of a sudden, they're trapped. But not only are they trapped, he emphasizes the significance of this capturing by not only being entrapped, but overcome. To be mastered, which is what this means. To be defeated, to be overcome, to be overpowered, to be under the control or a hostage, as it were, to be dominated. Whatever struggle that they were in, whatever escape that they had enjoyed, now all of a sudden, for some reason or the other, they're trapped, they're enslaved, they've been dominated, they are under control. The, the one who has come to prey upon them has captured them. Not only are they captured, but they're also corrupted. That's uh, the last part of verse 20. The last state has, been, has become worse for them than the first. Last state and first state. What, what, what is Peter referring to? What, what are the states of, of being that he wants us to, to identify and to contrast here? What, what are these? Well, 
He's talking about before they had escaped. Before they had knowledge. Before they even knew God. Before they had ever heard the gospel. Somehow, somehow, the, the, the current state of being entrapped and overcome having escaped those things, somehow their current state is worse than never hearing the gospel to begin with. Now, this is almost mind-boggling. How could this ever be possible? Because, because we know in Jesus' own words how bad things are for people who don't know and don't believe in God, right? John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 brings that to bear. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Those who do not know the gospel those who have never heard about Christ's work of salvation, his death on the cross, his righteous life, his resurrection, his offer of forgiveness and salvation, those who have never heard are condemned already because they've not believed, because they've not known. And I just want to pause here in this moment and invite you in this moment because you've heard. You've heard. And you have an opportunity to respond. You've heard that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You've heard that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That on our own merits, on our own terms, we deserve condemnation. But the righteous one came, Jesus himself. He came as God in the flesh, God incarnate. He came to live the righteous life that you and I could never live. He died the death on the cross so that we would not have to die that death because the wages of sin, the penalty for sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you believe? Have you put your faith and hope in him as the only way to salvation? This is the moment. If it's not happened for you, this is the moment. Give your life to Christ. Bow the knee before him. Somehow, this group of individuals, having heard the message, having escaped the defilements of the world, having enjoyed the benefits of community with believers, now get sucked in, now get entrapped, now are empowered, and now, somehow, it's worse for them than if they had never heard. Because, we're gonna come back to this next week, because in knowing, they're now accountable. There is judgment. There is a judge who sits on the judgment seat, and he will condemn he will judge based upon our rejection of the truth that we know. The next question that I would ask myself 
in this passage is, so who is Peter warning, okay? This is a pretty strong warning. Am am, am I the person that that you're trying to come after? Uh, Am am I the guy that that needs to listen up? And I think there are three three possibilities this morning, Uh, probably more, but three that we're gonna cover. One today and two next week. So come back next week for the the rest of the the, the passage and uh, trying to to uncover and unpack the truths of of this passage. So who is Peter warning? There are three possibilities, maybe more, but three that I'm going to cover. First, are they Christians who have lost their salvation? Are they Christians who have lost their salvation? So that, in fact, they have come to a knowledge of the truth. In fact, they have escaped the defilements of the world. But for whatever reason, they decide to abandon the faith. Is that what Peter is talking about? Or are they Christians who have fallen away? And maybe the contemporary term is have backslidden. And we'll deal with that one next week. And third, are they people who were never really saved to begin with? They just kind of dressed up a little bit. They kind of put on the, you know, put the lipstick on the pig. And by the way, there's, a, there's an illustration of, of the pig that Peter uses in, in, his, in this text we're gonna get to. Do they know how to dress things up? Do they know how to play the part? Have they enjoyed the benefits of the community without ever really being a part of the community? Is that what Peter is talking about? So how do we begin to find answers? Where do we start? And that leads us to our next question, or statement perhaps. Find your answers by looking to God. Find your answers by looking to God. Anchor your confidence in the character of God. Settle your heart in the knowledge of God. Look to God in his word and, and, and let the, the truths of his word and the unchangeability. He is the God who, who was and is and is to come. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a God who is consistent. He's a God who is dependable. He's a God who is trustworthy. Anchor your heart and your soul in the knowledge of who God is. Stake your claim in the knowledge of him. So what do we know? I'm gonna touch on these uh, briefly and come back to this next week. The, The first thing that we know is that God keeps his own. God keeps his own. Hallelujah. Salvation is of him. It is not of me. So to go back to 1 Peter chapter one, where Peter is describing this relationship and the identity of this church. He, he, he talks about a, a church that's elect because, not because of they chose God, but they're elect because of the foreknowledge of God in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. It is all of him. And because it's all of him, he holds and keeps his own. And this is all in the flow of this emphatic statement that Peter uses in chapter two, verse nine. He says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly and how to keep 
the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And there is no more dire situation, no more catastrophic event that happened than the two that Peter describes in chapter 2. The one about Noah and the one about Lot. I mean, imagine. Imagine you and your family are the only people walking the face of the earth who have any interest whatsoever in God at all. You think it's hard living in Columbus. You think it's hard being uh, in your workplace. You, you think it's difficult being in your community surrounded by people who are antagonistic about God. Well, let me tell you, you ain't seen nothing. Take a peek at this, Genesis chapter uh, 6, verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. There's not even words to describe the hopelessness of that situation. The loneliness of that situation. I mean, can you imagine not being able to come in fellowship with believers? Can, can you imagine not being able to call that friend and get some encouragement from the Lord? Noah didn't have that. His family didn't have that. Every person that walked the face of the earth not only hated God, but every single intention and thought of their heart was always evil continually. There wasn't even a spark of light anywhere. And yet, somehow God, God preserved this man and his family. He held them. Notice in verse 8 and 9, it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. How? Well, because God kept him. There's no other, there's no other reason. God keeps his own. He'll keep you. He'll keep you firm to the end. He promises to do that. On the verge of catastrophic judgment, and Noah's family is saved alone. No more desperate situation than that. And then there's Lot and his family. And, and three times, Peter will address Lot as righteous in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So, like, I think almost for emphasis, Peter says, I know what you're thinking, but yes, he was righteous. And God saved him. And, and maybe, to be honest with you, Lot's family in picture should be an encouragement to all of us in this room. Because if God looked on Lot that way, and every one of us in this room has placed their faith in Christ, and God looks at us as if we lived Christ's life, wow, what hope there is for us. 
keeping, the keeping power of God. Of course, we, we could remind ourselves of what Peter says in his first letter, in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. God keeps his own. Of course, we could go to John chapter 10, where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give unto them eternal life, they will never perish. And then he goes, he says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And you think that's great? <laughs> Guess what? My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. It's sealed, it's done, it's established because the cross and the resurrection is history. It's happened. It's over. The purchase is paid. The price has been met. The demands have been fulfilled. It's all done. <laughs> Nothing is left. And God will keep his own. God, God will not only keep his own, God will strengthen his own. And God will not only strengthen his, his own, he will sanctify his own. And, and the character and the understanding of who God is will settle us and direct our hearts to understand how to answer these other questions. And if you come back next week, we'll walk through it together. But, but just as we are winding our time down, it's what I want to leave us with is I want to leave us with the warning from the text. It won't do us any good just to, to, to inform our hearts with good, with good knowledge, but we need to understand what is Peter's point. And I think there are at least two, two points that I want to leave you with this morning. The first point is this. Do not be ignorant of the dangers in the church. As safe a place as this should be, it is not safe. Meaning, of all the places, of all the apostles and all the pastors who have written the New Testament, of all the places that they are most concerned, it's not a threat from the outside, but a threat from within. And Peter is addressing here those who grew up in the church. They probably said the prayer they probably went to the welcome to Maranatha or welcome to Jerusalem church class or welcome to Antioch or, well, you know, you get the idea. They served among one another. They rose in the ranks of leadership. They taught Sunday school classes. They were on the deacon board. They were pastors of the church and they were hostile to the things of God. Be aware. Steady your heart not in a person. Steady your heart in the Savior. Second, and that leads us to our time of communion. Do not be indifferent to the tendencies of your heart. Don't be indifferent to the tendencies of your heart. And we come to a time of communion and um, this is a moment where it should 
You know, it should bring a measure of sobriety to us. As we see the picture of what sin cost, it was costly. It cost Jesus his life. And when we think about sin and we understand what Jesus did to pay for our sin, it should make us come to a place of seriousness and soberness, appreciation for the grace and mercy of God. And what was actually happening in this church is almost unthinkable where we find in chapter 2, verse 13, speaking about the false prophets, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deception while they feast with you. They're parading and flaunting their depravity, and they have the audacity to participate in communion with the rest of these people and put it on display. Unthinkable. We can look at them and say, how dare they? But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to say, how dare I? And Paul will emphasize this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, where he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So I'm going to give you some time, a minute or so, just to reflect. Say, okay, <laughs> I got to take the warning. I don't want to be ignorant about the way I have defiled you. I don't want to be guilty of the sin that, that I have become comfortable with. And so in the next few moments, just take some time, you and the Lord, allow the Spirit to speak and listen and confess and make these right with God.